The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. A bankruptcy court filing on Thursday for collapsed crypto exchange FTX revealed the findings of new CEO John Ray, who said there was a shocking lack of corporate control and oversight at the company. Ray, who took over from disgraced founder Sam Bankman-Fried and previously oversaw the bankruptcy of Enron, said, quote, Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls. This situation is unprecedented. As the effects of the FTX collapse were felt across the globe, Singapore state investor Temasek Holdings, which invested in FTX, said it would write down the value of its entire investment of $275 million. Other investors, including SoftBank's Vision Fund and Sequoia Capital, have also written down their investments in the exchange to zero, as ripples from FTX's bankruptcy continue to be felt around the world. So this was the classic Ponzi scheme. We remember we saw this about 15 years ago with Bernie Madoff scandal. And by the way, don't forget who he gave all his campaign contributions to. Here's what goes on. FTX gave big campaign donations to politicians. Then they they lobbied lawmakers and government officials, also Congress. Congress approves the budget and paychecks for for those market cops. He was hiring CFTC market cops to sit on the board. You you know, so you see how it's circular. And and by the way, this is exactly what happens over time with almost all regulatory agencies. They get captured by the industries that they're supposed to be regulating, right? This has been happening for 40 years. This is just an extreme example. I mean, I got to tell you, this isn't the only company that is doing this. So I'm not convinced that more regulation is the issue here. We had a major financial scandal in 2008, which was one of the biggest financial scandals in American history with the housing crisis. And that was the most regulated industry of all. I mean, it was basically run by the government. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. The stock market this week largely took a break and closed approximately flat for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, down 0.7% for the S&P 500, and down 1.6% for the NASDAQ, rounding things off. There were some catalysts that investors have been thinking about that helped propel stocks higher these past few weeks, including the split Congress, uh, lower inflation reading, China relaxing its travel restrictions and what that means for manufacturing, as well as talk that the Fed may tone down its 75 basis point pace. Then there were a number of economic and earnings announcements this week that investors needed to digest in light of those catalysts. Let's start the wrap up here with some recent Fed chatter, and then let's look at some of the earnings and economic announcements this week that were key. According to Bloomberg, Fed Governor Christopher Waller, a voter, said we've still got ways to go before stopping interest rate hikes while Fed Vice Chair Brainerd said it may soon be appropriate to slow the pace of rate hikes, according to CNBC, early in the week. Now, San Francisco Fed President Daly, a voter in 2024, said the idea of the Fed pausing its rate hikes is not even on the table. And she thinks a 5% Fed funds rate is a reasonable place to hold. That same day, Waller said he's comfortable stepping down to a 50 basis point hike pace at the December meeting. 
Thursday, St. Louis Fed President Bullard, a voter this year, said the Fed funds rate is not yet restrictive and based on the Taylor rule, sees that the rate between 5 and 7%. Kansas City Fed President George said a real slowing in the labor markets and a contraction in the economy may be needed to reduce inflation, according to CNBC. And then Friday, Boston Fed President Collins, a voter this year, said a 75 basis point hike next month is still on the table. So clear as mud. But one thing we can see here is that it's likely that rates are going to remain high for a period of time. And it sounds like some of the Fed voters here are willing to take the economy into recession to tame inflation. So inflation is public enemy number one. So that was a lot of Fed speak with uh, current voters feeling hawkish, still on rates, trying to keep investor expectations contained. Uh, But let's turn to earnings. Earnings this week were largely a whole slew of retailers, uh, starting off with Walmart, which gave an upbeat on earnings and revenue and said it would guide in line for both its earnings and revenues in the fourth quarter. Target didn't fare as well, uh, down 13% on its earnings announcement by a large miss on both earnings and revenues. TJX beat earnings but missed on revenues, while Lowe's beat and guided for both earnings and revenues above consensus. Advanced Auto Parts fell 15%, missing for both earnings and revenue, guiding below consensus. Uh, But Target and Micron were the detractors from Trading Wednesday, with Micron saying it was cutting its DRAM and NAND wafer starts by 20%, saying their market outlook for 2023 has weakened, and they have future plans for additional CapEx cuts. Thursday, Macy's was up 15%, Cisco up 5%, and Bath & Body Works up 25%. What a whopping number. Uh, We're big earnings winners. Palo Alto up 7%, Ross Stores up roughly 10%, and Foot Locker up 8.7%. We're strong earnings finishers for the week in retail. Besides Micron, NVIDIA also missed earnings and guided below consensus to end the week on a sour note. So a bit of mixed bag on earnings announcements this week with some wins and some losses. We also note that both Walmart and Target said consumers are pulling back on discretionary spending. FactSet did a recent study looking at the numbers of companies citing key concerns around recession. There were in fact fewer companies this quarter concerned about it compared to the last quarter at 179 versus 242 companies. And the bulk of those concerns were in financials and industrials. But despite the drop in recession concerns, FactSet said 67% of the S&P 500 companies that are guiding and issuing guidance for the upcoming quarter have issued negative guidance. And that's well above the averages that they've seen. As such, John Butters, the author uh, of the FactSet report, said that the year-over-year decline in earnings is expected to be negative 2.1% for the fourth quarter. Negative earnings for the first time since the third quarter of 2020, which at that time was down 5.7% year-over-year. Turning to economics, the producer price index was cooler than expected, like we saw in the in CPI, up 8% versus 8.4% in September year-over-year. Stronger than expected retail sales of 1.3%. Mind you, you're not indexing that for inflation, uh, but still shows consumer spending is strong. Housing starts and permits showed no growth in October, and the NAHB housing index fell to 33 from 38 in the previous month. And I think one of the more important announcements this week in economics was the conference board's leading economic indicator report on Friday, or LEIs for short. 
falling for its eighth consecutive monthly decline, decreasing 0.8% in October. In the report, the board suggested a recession is likely to start at the end of this year and last through mid-2023. So that wraps up this week in FedSpeak, continuing there with Higher for Longer, key retail earnings announcements, and economic results that show conditions continue to deteriorate. Up next this week, we got our guest technician, Ralph Akampora. Even if you feel that crude oil just will not be needed long-term, say 20, 30, 40 years out, which is very contentious, who knows? But even if you feel that, it makes it very, very difficult to get the oil to market when you know you need it, which is three to five years from now, because which company is going to take out a long-term energy exploration project if they know that there's not going to be much demand for it, if you have a very high fixed cost, these sort of offshore drilling, that kind of stuff. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether a specific institution will be allowed to invest in fossil fuels. That's, of course, a question mark, but it's a big theme that came up and it increased my personal conviction level that you want to have exposure to energy companies in safe areas, North America being the prime candidate for that. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, here we are. Market's a little bit mixed this week. We've had a nice rally here over the last week or so. Where do we go from here? Joining me on the program is my good friend, Ralph Ancampora. And Ralph, let's take it from the top. What are the charts telling you? Well, Jim, I, I have to go back to October 13th. That was a very uh, climatic day. In fact, uh, to get very technical, it was an outside day. The high of the, that particular day was higher than the previous high, previous day's high, and the low was lower than the previous day's low. So it, would, it engulfed that whole previous day. And normally, that's uh, very bullish. And uh, so far, it's worked out very, very well. And uh, it was because of that date that I advised family funds and we got a little bit more aggressive. And uh, I, I see no reason to pull back. Uh, of course, today, I, I think there's inflationary fears again. You know, uh, rates were going up a little bit overnight. And, uh, but I, I think that's temporary. Uh, I think we're in that seasonal period, the Santa Claus rally period. I'll go as far as saying, I think uh, before this rally is over, I think we're going to attack the old all-time highs. This is like going to the end of the year. You see this, Ralph? Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, that's good news. Yeah. And a lot of the sectors, uh, you know, some a little bit better than others, uh, have come along fairly nicely. You know, um, technology lagged a little bit and it has its ups and downs, but I think the, the, the at least the near-term bottom is in. I, li- I like the uh, consumer staples. Uh, energy, of course, has its volatility, but major trend still looks pretty interesting in that. 
Ralph, is there anything else that looks good to you besides, I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, some of the various sectors, you know, consumer staples have done well. We've had energy obviously doing well. We've got financials doing well. Healthcare has done well uh, in industrial. So all of that looks pretty good if you look within the sectors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the first things I look at in the morning after looking at the leading averages. I look at the uh, 10, 11 uh, sectors, uh, especially ETFs. I mean, you can get a quick look at that. And just as you highlighted, uh, most of them have participated very nicely here. Yes, maybe uh, a little extended, short term. And, you know, a lot of it is running into previous highs. So we in the technical world would call that resistance or supply zone. And uh, I think we have to eat through that. Well, we see this with the market going up into the end of the year. Let's talk about another sector that has been struggling, and that has been commodities in general, especially precious metals. If you would have told me with inflation being what it's been now, the highest in 40 years, I would have expected gold and silver and precious metals to do better, but they haven't. What's your take there? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Gold and silver really participated at all. I don't know. They've they've lagged uh, throughout most of this period. And uh, I suspect that uh, they're going to continue to underperform. Although uh, gold picked up a little bit the other day, and uh, but uh, it still needs more. I I agree with you. I think it needs a little bit more time. Okay, let's now talk about interest rates. Uh, One of the things the market didn't like with the last Fed rate hike is Powell said, you know, the terminal rate might be a lot higher than we originally thought. On this day, we, uh, you and I are doing this interview on a Thursday. The ten years up about eight bips. Uh, what do you, where do you see uh, interest rates going from here? What does the chart tell you? Actually, I see rates going a little bit higher, and I think that'll be a, a little bit of a drag on the on the on the market. But I, I, between you and me, I, I think the market basically has discounted a lot of what we're seeing. And yeah, I, I, it could live with rates a little bit higher. But I think, uh, as I mentioned before, the year-end rally, uh, I still think is alive and well. Okay. So if we're talking about a year-end rally, uh, what happens? Let's talk about next year. So mm-hmm. it's widely anticipated the Fed will raise 50 bips in December. There's talk that they maybe go a quarter of a point in January and a quarter of a point in March, which would take the Fed funds rate to 5%. Uh, what do you see happening in the first quarter? Do you think it's just seasonal? We get it to the end of the year and then maybe it it pulls back or where do we go? Let's say uh, in I, I, I like that scenario that you just painted. Uh, yeah. Again, assuming that I'm correct and uh, we get a market that between now and year end attacks the old all time highs and maybe even make new highs. I think at that point, technically, the market would really be overextended. And I think, as you mentioned, the Fed persisting with their rate hikes, I think we could see a, a correction in the first quarter of, uh, uh, of next year. But I, I'm not in the camp of uh, we're going to make new lows after the, on, on that pullback. I, I'm not there. I think the market's made its bottom. So maybe a possible correction in that at some point. You know, the thing that really strikes me about this, Ralph, at some point, this is going to get costly for the government. We're seeing problems in the treasury market, and we're going to cross not too long from now. We're going to cross thirty-two trillion. So, 
you know, we're we're tracking at almost eight hundred billion in interest cost. I mean, at some point, uh, there's got to be a limit to what they can do. Yeah, I, I I agree. That's that's concern, but gridlock is probably going to be helpful for the market looking forward. You know, up until very recently, there's been an awful lot of cash on the sidelines. You know, and the and the bearish sentiment. Remember, I kept talking about the October lows. Um, at that time, I mean, the, the AAII statistics, uh, over 60% of the uh, people that were interviewed uh, was, were, were negative on the market. And a good friend of mine was telling me that institutions that are normally fairly fully invested, maybe 5% cash, had as much as 30% cash. And a lot of that money has to be put into the market between now and year end. And that's part of the internals that I see fueling this market higher. Once that's fully invested or fairly fully invested coming into the new year, then, you know, a new set of glasses, you look at the year a little differently. And again, a, a pullback, I think, would be normal at that point. You know, another thing that the market has going for it, too, is they they passed a law that will cost companies 1% on stock buybacks. So earning season's over, uh, and they're talking about a lot of buybacks by companies trying to get their buybacks in before December closes out so they don't have to pay that tax. That's got to be bullish. There, there you go. That, <laughs> that's another way of uh, talking about the cash in there and what they're going to do with it. Have to, they have to spend it. Yes. Good point. And Ralph, if we were going into next year, where we anticipate with the market being maybe overbought at that point, we get a correction. If there was anything negative that would cause you to change your mind, uh, you know, maybe the Fed comes out, gets more aggressive, maybe inflation doesn't come down as much or anything. Is there anything you would be looking at that would say, well, maybe this could go in the opposite direction? What? Go down deeper? Yeah, go down deeper. Well, I, I hate to talk about it, but uh, this thing in, uh, with Russia and the Ukraine, you know, just the other day, you know, we had this scare with uh, a missile dropping into Poland. I mean, that's, that's scary stuff. I mean, you're on the verge of, you know, escalating this to a level that uh, brings in NATO and everything else. So that would be an unknown that we can't fact, we, we don't factor in and wouldn't want to factor in but would definitely have a major impact on the market. Yeah, because, you know, we're not, we're not talking about a smaller unarmed nuclear country like Iran or somebody like that. We're talking about probably the most heavily armed country in the world with nuclear missiles. This guy Putin is, uh, he's sick. He's sick. Can you yep. believe what's going on? I mean, you read about the Second World War and the horrors of the war, and, and now here we are revisiting it live. And that's scary. That's scary stuff. Yeah. Well, what's even scary is the impact that Russia has on commodity markets. They're large exporters of grain and uh, obviously they're large exporters of oil as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't mention that, but you're absolutely right. There's another issue that could easily impact the stock market is the, the oil issue. And so it doesn't look like uh, President Biden is going to back away from his stance on on climate control and stopping fracking or, or whatever in our country. I don't think he's going to increase any of that. So uh, puts the pressure on us to uh, oil. So, 
Let's talk about another wild card out there, which is oil, because I think it's January that we're putting price caps on Russian oil. And yeah. Putin, Putin's not happy about that. So he's saying, you know, what happens if I don't sell it to you? Uh, yeah. yeah. What could that do to the uh, let's say we were to see oil prices spike uh, over $100. Uh, what about that and its impact? Oh, well, it's it's impact is multiple. I mean, it uh, it's it goes into the cost of shipping things and, uh, you know, just the cost of just living a normal life. I mean, it, it would it would hit the consumer immediately. And uh, Putin knows that, you know, and uh, I think that's the I don't want to say the gun he has to anybody's head, but uh, I'm sure he's thought about it a lot. And uh, it surely that surely would impact the market negatively. Now, what about where you you live? Right, you live in cold country, Ralph. Are you seeing a big jump in nat gas prices and utilities in your neck of the woods, like we are in California? No, actually, I put um, uh, I put some gas in my car uh, yesterday, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. We're down ten cents. It was three fifty six a gallon instead of three sixty six a gallon. Oh, come to California when we're. Come to California, we're over six. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. We got up over seven. There were parts of LA that got up to $8. Wow. wow. When I fill up a tank, it's uh, $53, $54. And my gosh, you fill oh, I'm over a hundred. A hundred bucks? Yeah, yeah, I go over a hundred. Wow. It's, 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 yeah, I just filled the diesel fuel. Yeah, I've got a, a motor yacht and. Yeah. I paid six fifty three for diesel. Yeah, so it's pretty high. So outside of, let's say, something happening in the Ukraine or let's say we get a giant spike in oil or something, you're expecting a correction, but you think the bottom in the market is in. Yes, I think the, the, major, main, the major bottom is in, yes. Now, I know we've talked about this in the past. Your wife is uh, like I... M is a big believer in dividend stocks. And oh, you've yes. told the story over various market, bear markets. You guys have held on to your dividend paying stocks and glad you did. So are you still doing that? Oh, absolutely. She tells me, get lost, get lost. <laughs> We're not touching anything. <laughs> well, you know, I I Ralph, I tell this story to to people that sometimes get nervous. You know, it's the Coca-Cola story. Had you bought it in 2007, you paid 30 bucks by March of 2009, it was down to 19. But in that three-year period, your income from dividends went up 24%. And by the end of 2009, you were back up to 30. So had you never looked at your statement, your income went up every single year, and then you were back to even uh, when the market turned around. Yeah, that's one of our holdings, in fact. Yeah, it's, it's uh, something that we like. Well, listen, yeah. Ralph, once again, congratulations on uh, the Market Technicians Association in 50 years. You were a big uh, part yeah. of that, creating that. So you got to be proud of I what am. you've accomplished. Jim, thanks for bringing that. I, I, of all the things I've done in my career, I have to say that's number one because it was myself and two other fellows, uh, Johnny Brooks and John Greeley, that we co-founded it. And uh, when we did that, we did it because uh, in the early 1970s, technicians weren't very well respected. And uh, um, we wanted to mimic the, the fundamental analysts in a way that they had breakout groups and they would meet 
you know, like the auto analysts and the drug analysts and the chemical analysts would meet periodically. And Johnny and I said, gee, why don't the, uh, chemi- uh, the technicians meet once in a while? And that's how it started. And, well, uh, look where look at uh, the long way you guys have come. Because at one time it wasn't well respected, but now you've got the same credibility that the CFA has. Yes, and uh, you know that that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I was very responsible with that. And uh, most important date in modern technical analysis history is Friday, December seventeenth, two thousand four, when myself and three other market technicians stood in front of the FINRA lawyers and the SEC lawyers, New York Stock Exchange lawyers, and we, uh, we defended technical analysis. And three, three months later, March of 19, uh, 2005, the SEC came out and said the CMT is equal to the CFA. And uh, well, that's, that's wonderful. And uh, yes, you've been a, a Great inspiration to me. So even at my age, I am going to be sitting for my first CMT exam next June. So I am proud of you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been an inspiration, Ralph. Thank Listen, you. my friend, you have a great holiday. Say hello to your wife, Rosemary, okay. and uh, look forward to talking to you and hopefully meeting you next year. Me too. Enjoy Thanksgiving. If you go back to macro events historically, the market tends to go down 25 to 40%. Now, we know a couple of cases where it was more like 50%. So, you know, we're thinking in that range when we say this is a bad situation and the market's going down because of it. So things have been reflected to some extent in the market as it stands today. Now, there's another side to this, though, actually, which is if there is some unexpected shock that occurs. We're pretty vulnerable right now to it because even with all that's happened, leverage by some measures is still very high. There's questions about liquidity, even in the treasury market, which is the most liquid market in the world. And we still have some level of concentration uh, in certain sectors of the equity market. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you getting closer to retirement? Do you worry about what retirement will look like? Financial Sense Wealth Management can help put your mind at ease. Our advisors can help customize an individual retirement plan that fits your needs and helps you get on the right track to achieving your retirement goals. We'll show you how to get the most out of your Social Security benefits, make the right decisions on Medicare, reduce taxes, and increase your return on investments so you can relax and enjoy your retirement years. Don't leave your retirement up to chance. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financial financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, the inflation rate seems to be coming down, but commodities have been holding strong. Will gold or silver outperform, especially with the dollar coming down? Let's find out. Joining me on the program is Dave Morgan from the Morgan Report. Dave, I want to begin with silver because you follow silver more closely than anybody else I know. Why is it, if you take all the metals, I don't take, if you look at nickel, if you look at copper, if you look at aluminum, iron ore, even gold itself, all these metals have gone up 
substantially over the last couple decades. In fact, if you look at where gold was in the year 1980, it was at 800. And today we're, what, approaching 1800. Silver was at 50. And here we are at 21. We're selling at 60% lower than where it was almost 40 years ago. What explains that? I will explain it to the best of my ability, but I want to add on to what you said just for education purposes. So there's no dispute that silver hit $50, but it was a spike high. It was also a spike high for gold. And so a lot of argument could be made that, okay, you're looking at one day's data point, $50. So I'm going to ratchet it down, Jim. What people don't know is this, and this is a long add to what you just gave us, but I want people to understand this. The highest price for silver in January 1979 was approximately $6 an ounce. So if you were buying it at $6.57, whatever, you were buying it at an all-time high. As most of us know, the study silver, even in a cursory way, silver went from $6 of January 79 to peak of $50 in January 1980 for an 850% increase in one year. Now, here's my point. Silver traded at an average price of $20 the ounce for the rest of the year. So my point is that 50 was a spike high, but silver traded at an average price for 12 months, three times the previous high of a year before. So let's look at that number. We're still in an unbelievable situation as far as price is concerned in the silver market. Now, the hardest question is why? The answer, at the lack of sounding like a broken record, is that we are determining the price of silver, wheat, corn, soybean oil, and copper on a derivative basis. We are not determining the price on the commodity itself. The derivatives markets, primarily the futures markets, the CME, regulated by the CFTC, have for a very long time determined the price of any commodity based on a promise to pay in a very leveraged way and in a, several cases, uh, a fractional reserve system. In other words, in many commodities, silver in particular, that if the amount of contracts that are outstanding were actually called, there would be a huge deficit in any of them, wheat or whatever. However, if you look at it from the perspective, okay, how much overage are we talking about? How many over sales are there that couldn't be met in the physical world. Oil is about three days. I don't know what it is for soybean oil. I don't follow the ags as close as I used to. The point is silver is something like seven months. So when you think about how the futures market actually works, if you're creating a derivative, you can create an infinite amount of derivatives. Now, by law or by their, let's say, I won't say law, by the contract that you actually sign when you use a commodities futures broker, 99.9% of people don't read it. But if you read it, there are limits to how much they can oversell. But the commodities commissions do not really pay any attention to it. Now, when I say they could create an infinite amount of silver on contract basis, that's somewhat of an exaggeration. Maybe if it got three or four or five times what their mandate says, they might actually start to do something about it. I doubt it. So if you've got an infinite supply of something, the price is pretty low. So if you just take the ratchet that down from infinity down to overselling it by seven months, you get the idea. 
There is a caveat to it, and I want to be clear on this. And that is this whole idea of fractional reserve works if and only if the amount of calls, in other words, I'm standing for delivery, can be met. And when the day comes that someone says, I want the silver off the exchange and it does not materialize, is the day that it won't be a default on the exchange because they are allowed to settle in cash. For any practical purpose, however, it would be a default because you're saying, well, wait a minute, I want to have the physical. I know I have to settle in cash. And you are telling me you're making me settle in cash. And as a side note, I've had not that many, several over the years of my clients that have sent me the direct information from their broker where they've stood for delivery. And these are, you know, pretty wealthy investors, but they're not institutions. So they're looking to take delivery of one contract, 5,000 ounces, 10 contracts, 50,000 ounces of three contracts, that type of thing. And in all these cases that I have, they have been sent a nice, neat little letter that says, here's your check. So in other words, they're forcing them into a cash settlement, even though they want to stand for delivery. Now, how much often does it happen? I don't know. I don't want to make a big case out of it. I just want it in the record and for notation purposes. But the big players are getting silver off the exchange and has been drained over the last more than a year from 150 million ounces down to around, I haven't looked in the last week, 38 million or so. Now, that raises a question, Dave, because if you take a look at where we've gone, I think it was like 150, we're somewhere, last time I checked, we're close to 35 million. But I relate this to, let's say, naked short selling. So let's say I want to short sale Exxon. Exxon, and just for simplicity, has a million shares outstanding, but my broker allows me to sell 10 million shares of Exxon. Well, if I'm able to sell 10 million shares of Exxon, I'm going to drive the price down. Doesn't that happen as well when you have derivatives that are 17, 20 times the available silver? I mean, how else can you not drive something down when you're allowed that much overage in terms of selling compared to what's available? Well, absolutely. And I think one of our earliest conversations, you know, when I was going, why does the price move? this way or that way. And I've always said the truth. It moves up on buying pressure and it moves down on selling pressure. And just to go a bit further, because we have a sophisticated audience, this is what Delta hedging is all about. So if you've got a bunch of options, which is a derivative on top of a derivative, like a CDO squared, for those that know what I'm talking about, and you have a lot of money on the line and you'd like to play this game and let's say, force the public's money into your pocket, as the price goes against you, you just sell more futures contracts more and more and more. And more and more selling pressure drives down the price, which makes your options out of the money, which means you collect. I mean, I used to say, and it's fairly much true still, that you could set your watch on options expiration on the silver market. You can almost guarantee that whatever the strike price was at the beginning of that month, it will be at or below that price in most cases. Of course, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, delta hedging is all algorithm driven. And they just say, oh, we need to move the price down this far, we'll sell this many futures contracts. Same thing, by the way, for everybody's edification. I'm sure most of your viewers know this. This is exactly what happened during the 1987 financial crisis. I forget what they called it. And then they had the working group on financial markets, which all the big players came into. And this is known as the plunge protection team. And how did they get the market back up off of this huge waterfall decline? 
they started trading the S&P futures pit until they bought, 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 leverage, 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 and then the market started to come back. So does it have an effect? Absolutely, it does. They couldn't build a computer program to do it if it didn't work. Well, David, let me relate this to what's going on in the physical market. Because if you go to, let's say, Kitco, and I want to buy a Silver Eagle, Silver's trading at what, 21-something, let's say under 22 bucks. But if I want to buy a Silver Eagle, if I can get it, I'm going to pay over 40. So I'm going to pay an 84 to 88% premium. If I want to go to gold, I'm going to pay maybe a 15 to 20% premium. So that tells me there's more demand than physical delivery to get to customers because how else can you get those kind of spreads? Am I wrong in thinking that way or what am I missing here? I am missing nothing, Jim. It's really a fact that the markets are broken. When you have a spot silver market of, as you say, let's call it 21. I haven't looked today, believe it or not. But whatever it is, the normal markup in silver through history, and I've got you know, 40 plus years, and it ebbs and flows. It changes, and I'll get to that in a second. But it's normally about 7%. And we've had these extremely large premiums. The first ones I saw, well, a couple. First one I saw that was notable was Y2K. And junk bags went to a 40% premium. Why would junk bags go to that high a premium? Well, Y2K, there was some thinking that the lights were going to go off, computers would stop working, and you'd probably have to barter. The best barter silver there is, is known as constitutional silver dimes quarters have, that are 90% silver minted by the U.S. Treasury. So there's that. And of course, once the Y2K rolled over, the spread came, or the premium came back to normal. And then we go on. So in the 2008 financial crisis, where all of silver and gold got whacked like everything else, the first things to recover were gold and silver. And even during the crisis, I think we, were, we had a show or two during that time frame. Regardless, silver was selling at $13 almost anywhere you could find it, yet the paper price was about 9 on the low. And I actually bought off the exchange and got three 1,000-ounce bars and had them minted privately from a mint master I'm friends with. But the point is that we saw that. But I wrote an article on arbitrage back then, and I said, as many silver bulls that are out there thinking that this move is going to go north, meaning that instead of the premium coming back down, that it was the new premiums when it set the new price. I said, ah, don't get your hopes too high. It won't. It'll come back to normal. And it did. This time, it is different because this time we've had these premiums go on and on and on. And in some cases, like the Silver Eagle, which is a specialty, I have to admit that, it has gone higher and higher and higher. It has backed off here recently, people that are really follow the market closely. But no, this is a fact that silver should be, gold should be close to the spot price across the board. And the reason it's not is there's not enough of it. There is not enough of it in what form? In investment form. And even in the industrial form, the thousand ounce bars, there are premiums on those in almost all cases. So the system's broken as far as I'm concerned, Jim. And you know, I try to tell people that are new to the market, go ahead and pay the premium. That's just signaling to you that at some point the system is going to catch up with reality. And you think about $20 silver for the average 1980 price compared to $20 silver today, and you know what kind of inflation has taken place and what the purchasing power of the US dollar has done, I would submit for your consideration that silver is probably the best place to be 
as far as a hard asset is concerned. And one caution, most people that really get it, when they do get it, tend to go overboard. And the one thing that I probably could have taught better is there is a right amount. Just like the right amount of food, there's the right amount of exercise. I mean, there's the right amount of silver. But honestly, if everybody was educated and had a 5% position in silver, and I recommend about 10, but you can choose your own number, we would have been out of silver decades ago. The problem is silver in the financial system makes up 0.02% of the entire financial system. And that's when these people tell me that silver will become money again along with the gold when we have this reset and it gets all settled. I dispute that because silver is so scarce and not been money for so long that in order for it to have any meaningful impact in transactions, it would have to go to the classic ratio of a 115th or 116th price of gold, or probably more to like the mining industry average, which is a seven to one factor. And even there, it would probably be undervalued for transactional purposes. And I hope I gave some education here. I mean, I really want to help people and always have, and I don't want people to overdo it in silver, but I want everybody to own it, if that's clear. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that struck me when you looked at these premiums, and as you said, they've been with us well over a year. I had some clients that were going to the COMEX and they had the same experience. They settled in cash. And because I thought, well, if there's a 80% or, you know, I saw it as high as 88% premium over the spot price of silver. Why not go on the exchange, buy five bars that would be, let's say, 100,000. And there were some people that were talking about putting together with their friends, buying a contract, and they each take a thousand ounce bar. But when the exchange settles in cash, you know, that's not doing you any good either. Let's talk about the miners, because to me, the one area that I see extreme value right now is you take a look at some of these big companies, whether you're looking at Newmont, you're looking at a Barrick. I mean, the dividends, Dave, I've never seen in the precious metal space where you got dividend yields that were competitive with treasuries. Yeah, I know. It's something that you know very few people know. I mean, Jim Paplava would because you know the markets and you know how they ebb and flow. And you know, there's a time to be in hard assets and there's a time to be out of it. But no, I mean, if you look at me buying, you know, Pan American on the, you know, on my private newsletter in the asset allocation table, and you note that I bought Pan American at 250, I mean, my actual yield on that stock's like 10, 11% today because of what I paid for it. So it's, you know, on my cost basis, I'm getting a huge return. But even on, you know, buying something today, like you outline Newmont or whatever, yeah, you are getting uh, dividends at some of them that are equivalent to what we're getting in the treasury market. So that alone should set off some kind of a thinking pattern to a savvy investor because both these metals, the way you actually gain leverage in a, let's say, less risk manner than a futures or options is through the mining shares. And the way you gain the best leverage is in top tier cash rich unhedged mining companies, which we feature in the Morgan Report in the top tier model portfolio. And on top of that, it's usually uh, streaming companies or royalty companies. And these are the best of the best because we do have some unforeseen situations, meaning what's happening with the diesel market, what's happening with labor, what's happening with water. And one thing I want to note for your listeners, Jim, is that I did an interview on my private part of the website. I always want to get new paid members, but I'm not trying to be a hustler here. But the point is, it wasn't for general edification. It is an interview I, from a guy I met 
at the latest Silver Symposium about the water situation in Nevada. And the impetus for that conversation was because one of my members came through the email and said, David, I really want to know what's going on with the Southwest water crisis. How will it affect mining in Nevada? So I got basically an expert on it that's had family mines there for decades, and he knows all the laws intimately. And he came to me. It was one of those, I'll call it God shots. I mean, I needed to get this information. All of a sudden, this guy appears in front of me, gives me his business card, and tells me all about what he knows. So I interviewed him. So back to you, Jim. All right. Well, listen, Dave, given where the fiscal market is right now, as we talk about, you're paying close to an 80% premium for silver. What would you be doing here? Well, I still advocate, you know, what I wrote 20 years ago, 10 rules of silver investing, get the most silver you can for the money. The premiums will shrink at some point. I mean, you know, I've been around this for decades and normally the premiums at some point come back to where an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver, which means that you will be on the over-the-counter market going back to your walk-in dealer, for example, and you throw out 10 silver eagles and 10 silver rounds, you'll get paid approximately the same. Now, I want to be careful what I'm saying here. That was true in the past. Will it be true in the future? One, I don't know. Number two, there's been such a high premium on the silver eagle that all these dealers are well aware of it. So they're probably going to bid higher than the spot price for that specific product. But at the end of the day, silver is silver. So you want to kind of balance that. I would do not recommend anyone buying silver eagles at this point in time, unless they have a specific reason for doing so. I have a specific reason, but I'm buying instead of my normal monster box orders, I'm just buying rolls. Why? Because I have a type, which means I've got one of every year that's ever been minted. So to continue my collection, I've got to continue to buy them regardless of the premium. But that's a good reason to do so. So right now I would say, Get a survival position in silver, which would mean pay the big premium for either constitutional silver, silver bar, silver rounds, just get some silver in any form that makes sense to you. And then I would say if you're going to put in, let's say 10%, I'd go half and half, which means half of it would be in physical one form or the other. And the other would be in breakdown of top tier, mid tier, and speculative companies in silver. And if you're really just going to dabble in the market, Just pick out one or two top tiers, get your silver bags, and you'll be fine. Because when this thing breaks apart, there will be a run into gold like we've probably never seen before, and silver will probably outperform. So on a leveraged basis, silver is highly leveraged to a financial crisis, much more than gold is. All right. Well, listen, Dave, as we close, if our listeners would like to find out more about the Morgan Report, tell them how they can easily do so. You bet. If you just go to my main website, the morganreport.com. Just sign up for the free letter. That's your first name and an email. And it sounds extreme. The top, and I rewrote this recently, you could go broke in less than 24 hours. And that gets everyone's attention and most people won't read it. But if you take seven minutes and do read it, you're going to learn a lot. And people say, oh, David, you're extreme. You know, at times you need to be extreme. But the truth is that you can go broke in 24 hours. Ask anybody in Cyprus that was bailed in. Ask anyone in Argentina where they closed the banks and only allowed you 300 pesos a month to come out of the ATM. I mean, and by the way, I got that from Frank Barbera, Jim. But the whole deal here is that we are in a crisis situation and chance favors the prepared mind. Whether or not you think you could go broke in 24 hours, you ought to take action that it could happen to you. 
So I know that's a hard pitch and it's a hard sale. I'm not selling a newsletter. I'm selling reality for you to take action because satisfaction has the word action in it. You're not going to be happy if you act too late. You'd rather be six years too early than six minutes too late. And I think it's going to come to that. Uh, I agree. Well, listen, Dave, as always, thanks for coming on the program. Happy holidays to you and uh, hope you come back and talk to us again. So starting in early 2020, we made a big warning on Financial Sense News Hour and through a series of articles on our website that inflation was likely to see a big spike. Obviously, we have seen that. And ever since early 2020, we've been reiterating the outlook for the need to prepare for higher than average inflation for the long term by investing in tangible assets, particularly energy. Well, now that we are seeing inflation starting to decelerate, especially as recessionary concerns mount, we are going to provide an update on our outlook for why we still think investors need to prepare for an inflationary decade. We're going to give you three macro events that I think are driving the inflationary scenario. Number one, we've got to look at fiscal policy. It is highly inflationary. Let's not forget when Biden came into office, they have passed four and a half trillion dollars of additional spending. This is on top of the regular budget with entitlements, defense, you know, running all the departments of uh, the government, whether it's the judiciary, the FBI, all of this uh, is a regular budget. But on top of that, there was four and a half trillion, which is pushing its way through the economy. And how are you seeing this take place? Well, number one, we'll get to our deficits in just a moment. But our deficits are growing, but it's also bringing on the Treasury the need to go into the marketplace and raise massive amounts of money. A good example, in September, they were looking at raising $400 billion in the fourth quarter. They raised that last month to $550 billion. Then in the first quarter, they're going to have to raise $578 billion plus drawdown their cash reserves by an additional $200 billion. So in other words, they are going to have to raise $778 billion in the first quarter, which means we're annualizing right now at a deficit of $2.3 trillion. So if you take a look at the end of 2024, by the end of Biden's first term, the national debt, which is currently approaching $32 trillion, will be $36 trillion. And I was reading an interesting statistic, Chris, that really surprised me. Every president from Reagan on who has served an eight-year term, so that would be Reagan, that would be Clinton, that would be George W. Bush, and that would be Obama. Every one of these that uh, presidents that have served eight-year term has doubled the national debt. Think about that for a minute doubled the national debt. And the other thing that we have to take a look at is, as we have seen these aggressive Fed rate hikes, remember, we started out the beginning of the year at 0% on the Fed funds rate. We're at four, and it's estimated they'll take it to five and maybe five and a half. Who knows? But what this is doing is raising the cost of that debt to the government. Because up until this year, the government was paying below a half a percent on 10-year treasuries. Today, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 3.8. They were paying maybe 10 basis points or one-tenth of a percent on T-bills. Today, they're paying over 4%. In fact, they got as high as 4.6. 
So that alone is raising the annual interest cost to the government between $700 and $800 billion annually just in interest. But it's not going to stop there because the debt is now growing at two times the rate of GDP. In fact, we're hardly going to see any GDP growth because it's widely anticipated that we're going to be in a recession next year, which means expenses go up, tax revenues fall, the deficit gets bigger. So while the Fed is trying to raise rates to cool off demand, the government's fiscal spending is pushing more money into the economy. And what's the classic definition of inflation? Too much money chasing too few goods. And just to give you an idea of where we've gone since 2019, in 2019, our outstanding debt was $22.7 trillion. Three years later, as of last month, our debt is now $31 trillion. 272 billion, representing 123% of GDP. And if we keep going in the direction that the Fed is going, raising the cost of the debt, because nearly a third of our debt is going to be coming due in the next two years. So that means the government may be going because the government was financing a lot of its debt on the short end of the scale, because they're looking at, hey, if we only have to pay one-tenth of a percent, it costs us nothing to issue debt. Well, now that's coming back to bite the Treasury, because now instead of one-tenth of a percent, they're paying over 4%, and maybe even 5 and 6 I mean, some Fed governors are talking about we may need to take the Fed funds rate to 6 or 7%. That's not going to happen. It would collapse the economy. But that alone, if we start approaching Chris, 800 to a trillion dollars in interest, that will consume 25% of total government revenues. If you take a look at where they're projecting, we could be at 40 to 50 trillion by the end of the decade. Remember, right now, the economy was still growing. And all of a sudden now, these massive spending programs and the increase in interest rates are raising the cost of running the government. And more and more debt is going to be added. And remember what happens in a recession. In a recession, unemployment goes up, profits go down. So there's less tax revenue. So the deficits get even bigger. And unfortunately, right now, you've got massive amounts of treasuries coming into the market while foreign central banks are dumping treasuries And one of the biggest buyers of treasuries, the Fed, is absent. And what this is going to mean, I think some point next year, the Fed is going to have to turn and start monetizing the debt, or otherwise we're going to be in a full-blown financial crisis. So the first leg of this inflationary spiral that we see in this decade is going to be monetary and fiscal policy. Fiscal policy right now is highly inflationary. And is getting so big, eventually it's going to force the Fed to switch gears and go back to printing money to monetize this debt. And as we've discussed many times on our show, this isn't a matter of Republican or Democrat administrations. Both of them are playing into this. 
It's baked into U.S. fiscal policy now at this point. Um, and I do want to point out, if any of you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to watch the in-depth study that we posted this week on YouTube and our website, where we took a look at uh, a lot of the different figures in terms of rates of debt, interest rates, interest expense, and a lot of what we touched on today. We uh, did a presentation on that. It's titled the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'll link out to that where this show is posted on Financial Sense. So again, going back to what we're discussing here about preparing yourself for an inflationary decade, that's still the view that we're holding to, even though we are seeing a slight deceleration at this point in the inflation data, as we discussed on FS Insider this week, if you look at Truflation's real-time dashboard where they track 18 million different items across all spending categories, we're now under 7%. But for the long-term, fiscal policy is highly inflationary. What is the second component of this that you believe is all also going to lead to higher than average inflation for the long term. The second one, Chris, is something we're very bullish on is rising energy and commodity prices, because as energy prices rise, whether it's for natural gas, if it's for oil, heating oil, uh, distillates and things like that, it works its way through the economy. Think of anything you go to the store, it got there by a truck diesel fuel, or it got there by an airplane, got there by a boat. So as energy prices go up, and I've seen even some screens, traders are speculating about $200 oil, it is going to drive the cost of energy. And I've I've got six uh, screens on energy on my Bloomberg right now. And Chris, I'm looking at com uh, U.S. commercial crude oil stocks below five-year averages, Gas, U.S. gasoline stocks within the middle point of U.S. averages. If you look at crude oil stocks at Cushing, way below five-year averages. And then more importantly, if you look at diesel and heating oil, far below five-year averages. And it's not just that we're below these five-year averages. You know, you take a look at we're we're looking at possible diesel shortages in pad one, as we discussed last week with Doomberg, and it's worsening. And the reason it is, there's three bases behind that. If you take a look at U.S. refining capacity, it's now lower than it was before COVID. In fact, for the second consecutive year, it's roughly about 17.9 million barrels a day. And a lot of U.S. refiners were shut down uh, their capacity during the pandemic when fuel demand plunged, while others closed facilities to convert them into biofuel plants. The second thing, normally when you get into these months of the year, you know, September, October, you get into the shoulder months of the year is refineries kind of shut down to do annual maintenance. And then remember what's coming up in January when we're going to ban imports of all Russian energy products and put a cap. So all of this is, I mean, if you look at distillate uh, inventories, they're 20% below their five-year average for this time of the year. And so, in fact, if you look at diesel reserves, they're the lowest they've been since 1951. So the East Coast could have some real major problems as we go forward this year and next. And when it comes to natural gas, the real problems are going to surface next year, especially if the, the war in Ukraine continues.
Yeah, another part of that too that a lot of people are looking at is uh, well, the hope that China is going to move away from their zero COVID policy. There's been increased rumors that that's going to happen over the past couple of weeks. If they move out of it, that's going to be another inflationary aspect as well, wouldn't you say? Sure. And let's not forget that OPEC production, uh, they're going to cut by 2 million barrels. And as we pointed out in the program, it's really not a cut because they're falling short of their production targets by over 3 million barrels. In fact, OPEC production dropped 210,000 barrels last month. And then you take a look, Chris, at the geopolitical risk from whether it's Ukraine, Iraq, or in the North Sea. And then add on top of that, is uh, Terrence Keeley. Yeah, he was a former BlackRock uh, manager of an ESG fund, and he's got a new book coming out called Sustainable. He's basically saying ESG is broken. It's not working. So if you take ESG policies, you take banana greens who are trying to stop basically any building of anything. I don't care if it's plants, if it's uh, nuclear, if it's nat gas, if it's pipelines, if it's mines opening up, uh, they're against all of that. And so, you you know, we, we just vetoed a mine in Minnesota. We just blocked a mine going in Maine. So every Arizona, everywhere you look, they're stopping mining. And we might want ESG, but it isn't working very well. And as Keeley talks about in his book, take a look at Texas that converted a lot of its energy, even that's where most of the nation's oils produced. Uh, last winter, when the wind turbines uh, did not work, the solar panels did not work. And of course, Chris, we experienced these brownouts this summer with the heat wave. It didn't work in California. So, and if you take a look at every state that has adopted these ESG, this kind of green policies, they're experiencing some of the highest utility rates. Green is dirty and it's expensive. And, uh, you know, just take a look at California or New York, what you're paying for utilities. I think California has the highest utility rates in the country. So in one of the things that we saw higher energy, and this gets back to the article I wrote in April of 2020 uh, from oil glut to oil crisis. One of the main drivers behind that during the bear market in oil that began with the Saudi oil wars in 2014 is companies cut their investment. And so I don't care any major you're looking at, and even OPEC itself, uh, there just hasn't been the incentive to invest. And then now there's a war on energy uh, against the fossil fuel industry. In fact, the U.S. Climate Summit that uh, the U.S. got other nations to sort of sign on getting out of fossil fuels. Well, if we're going to get out of fossil fuels, how are we going to run our economy? What's going to run the tractors, the machines, the heavy earth equipment that you need to produce raw materials to create windmills and solar? So we've got a war on fossil fuels. And on top of that, we are not doing anything in the way of investment. I mean, if you were a company, why would you want to spend a lot of money to invest right now where you know, you're know you being threatened with uh, higher tax rates? You're being threatened with regulation. You're being uh, threatened with, uh, you know, shutdowns. We're not granting leases and permits. And so it's no surprise we're seeing falling production, whether it's in Western non-OPEC production or within OPEC itself. And that's going to be driving energy prices up this decade, Chris, which is another leg of inflation. 
Jim, earlier you had said banana greens. What's the definition of that again? The academic definition, of course. Well, banana stands for build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. And uh, in fact, uh, the folks at Doomberg have been pointing this out. If you're trying to go drill, forget it. If you're trying to go start a new mine, forget it. If you want to put wind turbines offshore, forget it. If you want to put solar panels in a large solar farm, good luck trying to get that passed. I mean, you know, they, they stopped wind off Hyannis Port. Do you think you're going to put up wind turbines off Malibu or uh, let's say Santa Barbara? Uh, with the affluent people that live along the coastline, they're going to want to look at wind turbines. It's just not going to happen. And so, and as Peter Zion talked in his book, you know, wind and solar and even EVs don't work in a lot of places of, of the globe where you can't, you know, the wind doesn't blow and you don't get a lot of sunshine or you, the, the weather is so cold that it cuts down the mileage on an EV. So a lot of this stuff is not working. And that's what this uh, former BlackRock manager, Terrence Keeley, in his new book, Sustainable, is talking about. It's broken. We need to figure another way out of this. And more practical, Chris, would be transitioning to hybrid cars rather than just pure EV. And we're still going to need fossil fuels. It drives 84% of the transportation. And you take a look at what we've enjoyed for half a century which was reliable electricity. And especially in this high-tech world that we have, you know, I was just commenting to my wife the other night, I've got laptops, iPads, iWatches, iPhones, all these devices that we have to charge at night so they work in the morning. Imagine what happens in a state like California where all of us are driving EVs. And so instead of at night with the demand for energy going down, We've got our cars in the garage consuming large amounts of electricity. I mean, the last uh, crisis we had here during the summer, the governor asked people not to charge their EVs during the day. And that's only with 10% of our car fleet EVs. Imagine what happens when it's 80 to 90%. So uh, anyway, it's it's uh, a long way away. And this is just going to be just more of a macro inflationary factor. Okay. So again, if any of you listening, you know, if you go into the dictionary, just keep in mind, banana greens stands for build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. That's the uh, academic definition of that that we've coined here. So it sounds like, Jim, you know how we practiced modern monetary theory that that had become absorbed or inculcated into fiscal policy with massive deficit spending after the COVID lockdowns and the helicopter drops of money and issuing of stimulus checks directly to consumers. You know, no worry, we don't have to worry about this massive amount of deficit spending because the only thing that would be a problem is if inflation breaks out. But, you know, we can deal with that later. Of course, now we are feeling the repercussions of that exact policy. So when it comes to the regulatory and environmental policy that we're now following. It sounds like we're implementing a similar type of experimental theory or philosophy here, but in this case, it's magic energy policy, right? We don't need to worry about coal, natural gas, oil for heating our homes or for electricity because we can rely on magic energy. Yep. And even nuclear. I mean, we should be doing more nuclear. You can build smaller plants, you can put in rural areas, but even then we're shutting down like in 
California, the governor extended uh, Diablo Canyon to 2030, but in 2030, it gets uh, decommissioned. And we're not building anything to replace the plant that we shut down earlier at San Onofre. That's shut down. We lost 10% of our supply. And then when Diablo Canyon gets shut down in 2030, we'll lose another 10%. Uh, it would be one thing if we were shutting them down, if we were building new ones to take their place, but we're not. So once again, it's this magic thing, but I don't think it's going to work. Yeah, and China is also magically going to continue to send us all the raw materials that we need, including the rare earth metals, which are now all completely processed by them, nearly 80 to 100% of rare earth metals. So, you know, magically, we should expect them to continue to export those to us. That's no problem as well. And guess how they're making all that stuff with coal fired plants, nat gas fired plants. And they're going nuclear as well. And they're trying to go green, but the vast majority of their electricity is going to come from coal. So how's that work for climate change? Well, speaking of China, let's talk about deglobalization here, because this is the third major component uh, when we're thinking about the long-term outlook for higher than average inflation. So tell us, where do you see deglobalization fitting into this? Well, we t something that we learned uh, during COVID was the supply chain disruptions, everything from pharmaceuticals to computer chips. And we're still dealing with uh, computer chip shortages. So what we're doing now is, as Peter Zion talked about in his book, it was we're going through a process of deglobalization. So you're seeing chip manufacturing coming back to the U.S., the Biden administration passed a $400 billion chip bill. So you're seeing Intel build a factory in Ohio. They're building a factory in Europe. They're building one in Phoenix. So a lot of that is coming back. As it does, it's more expensive to build things here from chips to cars to cell phones to computers, but it's happening. So this whole thing is going to disrupt the supply chain. It'll probably take a good uh, decade to make that transition. So once again, we've got three macro forces, fiscal policy, energy, commodities, which are in short supply. And then third is deglobalization. These are three large macro events that are gonna drive inflation and the Fed's gonna be powerless to do anything about it. The Fed cannot stop fiscal spending. The Fed cannot create energy, commodities, or natural gas, and the Fed can't stop the process of deglobalization, which is taking place just around the world. Everywhere you look, uh, companies are coming back to the West, whether it's Europe, the U.S., North America. So the whole transition is going to take time. And during that, you're going to see supplies. I mean, I have a nephew who's building a house, and it's taken longer than uh, they're behind schedule now, almost by a year. As a result of supplies, getting windows, air conditioning, getting things like appliances. So you're seeing this. You go to a store, you just can't walk out with a refrigerator, washer, and dryer. It could take you months. So, Jim, let's discuss this in the context of investment implications. Again, like I said in the very beginning here, you know, we've been talking about the outlook for higher than average inflation for the long term. And again, reiterating this view that we should expect it to continue for most of this decade and the need for investors to hedge the forces of higher inflation with tangible assets, especially with energy. And this is something that we've been doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management for the past two years. So tell us, uh, you know, real quickly, what do you see from an investment standpoint here, given what we discussed today? Well, we like commodities, especially energy, base metals, ags, and uh, we also like precious metals, especially I'm very, very bullish on silver. 
because I think we've got a silver squeeze coming here next year. So we're, uh, at least in the one of the portfolios I run, we're over 30% commodities and we're 15% energy. We have base metals, we have precious metals. So I think this is going to do well in this inflationary environment. Another sector that we're very bullish on and invested in is healthcare. Because if you take a look around the globe, we have aging populations, Japan, China, especially as Peter Zion talked about, China's in deep trouble. Uh, because of their one-child policy, and also that their preference for births, even with a one-child, was for males. So there's a shortage of women. So China's facing aging population, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. The U.S. is probably better because of our immigration. So healthcare for an aging world. I also am a big believer in chip technology. If you take a look at it, Warren Buffett just made a major investment in Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, Chris, everything that you operate in your home, I mean, your toaster is going to have a computer chip in it. Your cars, I mean, you just take a look at your cars today. Uh, the software updates, the, the computer chips that they're putting into cars today. So we love chips and technology. And then the other thing, I think in a time of inflation, consumer spending habits are going to change. So I'm a big believer in consumer staples. But that's where we're investing as a firm. Uh, we're investing in commodities, precious metals, healthcare. Uh, I'm moving into chips and then also staples, uh, because I think that's what's going to drive this economy over this next decade. So in summary, we may be seeing inflation decelerate from the peak levels that we got, at least on the official CPI at 9%. But you still think that we're looking at a higher than average inflation compared to what we saw in prior decades for the long term. Yeah, it's going to be with us for quite some time. And like I said, these are larger macro factors. And that's something I think the Fed missed when it was looking at this, when they said inflation was transitory, because they were looking over the last decade. And over the last decade, they expanded their balance sheet to almost $5 trillion from $800 billion, and we had no inflation. And that's because a lot of the money the Fed created stayed on the balance sheet of the Fed rather than working its way into the economy. And you had government fiscal deficits uh, were a lot more moderate than what you see now. And that changed with Trump coming in. The early years of the Obama administration were trillion-dollar deficits coming out of the financial crisis. And then we had, of course, the Fed printing to stimulate the economy, bringing interest rates down to zero. But a lot of that stayed in the on the Fed's balance sheet or it went into the financial markets. Now, the big factor that changed all of this, supply chain issues that we saw with COVID, rising energy prices because of lack of investment. And then third, this deglobalization trend that we're we're seeing, and these, Chris, are they're going to be with us for at least a complete decade. And so, and then, you know, you throw in ESG and banana green policies, it's driving up the cost of energy everywhere. So just look at your utilities. I mean, I'm just blown away when you go to the supermarket and take a look at what's happening to food cost. Uh, it's amazing. But anyway, that's the way to protect yourself, and you better protect yourself this decade, especially if you've been relying on fixed income. Or you're thinking, oh, well, the stock market goes up 10% each year. I don't think that's what we're going to see this decade like we saw in the previous decade. So to sum it up, prepare yourself for inflation. 
That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 486 3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. Well, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Financial Sense News Hour. Until you and I talk again, well, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.